Getting a nuclear reactor shut down is just the first step in trying to render the highly radioactive remains safe for people and the environment, if such a thing is even possible. So when Vermont Yankee owner Entergy wants to sell the reactor's radioactive remains, what happens to the leftover so-called spent fuel rods, the radioactive containment structure, the area around the site? You might be tempted to accept official assurances that it will be handled okay, don't worry your pretty little head about all that contaminated waste. But then you hear from a genuine expert who explains to you, Old military bases often need to get cleaned up, and they get cleaned up when they're transferred to a new owner. The new owner takes responsibility for that, and they have insurance in place. They have money in the bank. They have a structure that really holds them accountable to get the job done and to make sure the job is done well. All of those assurances that are very common to have in place for the transfer of contaminated industrial sites just aren't in place here. Well... When you hear that the nuclear industry is once again playing loose and fast with your long-term safety, you'd be right to think that you are sitting in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn about what's happening at Vermont Yankee in Vermont, where Entergy wants to sell the carcass of that dead nuclear reactor to Northstar, a demolition company with zero experience in working on nuclear sites and a company that assures everyone that they can do the work more cheaply than anyone else. Are you feeling relieved yet? Sandra Levine of the Conservation Law Foundation in Montpelier, Vermont, gives us straight talk about a very convoluted situation. And in case you get confused about radiation and radioactivity as often as I do, we have a 10-minute masterclass in understanding nuclear's invisible impact on our lives given by the inimitable Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, one of the clearest communicators of nuclear complexity to be found anywhere. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Pope Francis had time to contemplate since being confronted by priestly sexual abuse survivors in Ireland last week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 22, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in California, where the ongoing burial of spent nuclear fuel at the shuttered San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station has been suspended officially 
until the Nuclear Regulatory Commission can determine why a canister loaded with waste became stuck as it was lowered into a concrete vault, producing high radiation readings that alerted workers to the fact that something was amiss. NRC has scheduled a special inspection for September 10, but no public meetings have at this time been scheduled for the local community. In an article in the OC Register, Tom Twitchy Palmasano actually said, this was an unacceptable event, which is why I halted the fuel loading. Oh, Tom, shut up. You did not even reveal this accident until it was exposed by a whistleblower at a public meeting. So don't try and take credit like you're a good guy, because in this one, honey, you absolutely are not. And if a near miss of a catastrophic radiation accident on the beach in Southern California was discovered by a radiation protection technician who detected radiation levels higher than expected for a properly loaded canister, two things. First of all, how high were those readings? And secondly, why is it that they're going to be expecting radiation in the first place? And in addition to inspecting on-site on September 10, the NRC needs to re-examine their entire plan for San Onofre, which at this point looks a lot like burying dirty bombs on the beach with long fuses on them. It will take years, if not decades, but they will corrode, they will erupt, they will release the radiation inside, and then what are we supposed to do? No, 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 no. More has to be done. And let's get a public meeting while the numbnuts brainiacs from the NRC are in town. The 5 eighths inch thick storage canisters in use at San Onofre are made by a company called Holtec International, which is why some opponents of the proposed interim storage facility for spent fuel in southeast New Mexico say they believe the canisters that would hold radioactive fuel rods in their location, should it come to pass, could be unreliable. Ya think? And now Holtec is going to be taking on two more U.S. nuclear facilities for decommissioning. U.S. utility Entergy has agreed to sell the Pilgrim and Palisades nuclear power plants to Holtec International after their closures in 2019 and 2022, respectively. That announcement came just one day after Exelon said it will sell its Oyster Creek plant to Holtec for decommissioning. Why this rush to give so much deadly spent nuclear fuel to a company with such a poor record? Meanwhile, First Energy Solutions has filed first steps in shutting down the Davis-Bessey Nuclear Power Station in Ohio in May 2020, Beaver Valley in Shippingsport, Pennsylvania, and Perry in Perry, Ohio, in May and October of 2021, respectively. Bet they're talking to Holtec, too. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. At Rocky Flats, the site of the former plutonium pit manufacturing site for atom bombs, the radioactively contaminated Superfund site is being pushed to be opened as a wildlife refuge as of next month, September 2018. This despite legal moves and heavy pushback from concerned local citizens. Now we get to see the signs placed by government agents at the site to reassure the populace to use the area with impunity and a calm conscience. 
and the nuclear spin-speak PR manipulators have done a bang-up job at hiding the truth in plain sight. After four paragraphs of reassuring blah, 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 in the final paragraph on the sign, it states... While small amounts of contamination remain above background levels, the corresponding radiation doses a visitor receives is small. If you visited the refuge hundreds of times in a year, your dose would still be much less than a medical x-ray. Let's get this straight. That is a false equivalency. An x-ray goes straight through you and exits your body in a fraction of a second. Contamination from plutonium or other radionuclides on site at Rocky Flats, which are, quote, above background levels, are in the dirt and the dust and runoff water. They can be inhaled or work their way into cuts or abrasions to your skin. Where the contaminant remains, inside you, up close and personal, shooting subatomic particles at your internal organs, and that dirt and dust won't stay within the so-called wildlife refuge behind the fence, it will be tracked off-site on shoes and clothes, cars and tires, spread through the area on the wind and through the rain runoff. And because it will take years for the health impact to start showing up in cancers, heart disease, birth defects, and other problems, even if they bother to read the sign, people will forget there's anything there to be concerned about. So to the traitor to human life and our genetic heritage who actually wrote the wording for that sign, you, yes you, and the entire industry that supports you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. I'll have a picture of that sign up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 375. And for those of you who would like to know more about Rocky Flats, an exhibit dedicated to the history of the Rocky Flats plant is now on display at the Denver Central Library through October. It features the work of 12 different artists and was curated by Jeff Geip, who is the son of a Rocky Flats worker. In Japan, a nuclear drill for simultaneous accidents at two nuclear power plants in Fukui Prefecture mobilized 21,000 people and focused on evacuating them from Fukui. The U.S. wouldn't dare try that at San Onofre or at Pilgrim. The governor of Japan's Hiroshima Prefecture told RT.com that Japan should get out of the U.S. nuclear umbrella and in the U.K., major U.S. construction firm Bechtel Corporation has withdrawn from its key role in building a nuclear power plant on the Isle of Angsley in Wales, saying that it would be too hard to make money on the project, whatever it takes. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, there is no end to the nuclear news, though you wouldn't know that by contemplating mainstream media because they just don't seem to get it. I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news, and that's what we set out to provide here at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue so if you're grateful for the information you get from the show, help us out, won't you please? 
Send a donation of any size to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time gift or set up a recurring donation. And for those of you who want to make a big difference on a budget, on the website there's a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Let's face it, that's the same as you would spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee. And we promise you, nobody here is going to drink that coffee where you will apply it directly to the show. Please do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help us on our mission, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Vermont Yankee is an object lesson on some of what can happen to a nuclear reactor after it's been shut down. The manipulations of the nuclear industry and its codependence in government and the NRC that are really not in the best long-term interests of people and the environment. To learn what's going on, we spoke with Sandra Levine. She is senior attorney with the Conservation Law Foundation in Montpelier, Vermont, where her work focuses on climate change, clean energy, land use, transportation, and natural resource protection. I became aware of Sandra after I was sent a link to her op-ed article, Risky Vermont Yankee Transfer Should Be Stopped. That's what we talked about when we spoke on June 27, 2018. Sandra Levine, it is so good to have you here with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start out with an understanding of the context. First of all, what is the Conservation Law Foundation and what is your work there? Conservation Law Foundation is a New England regional environmental advocacy organization. We work on solving the environmental problems that face the communities and the people throughout New England. I work in Vermont and I work largely on clean energy and climate change issues. And we've been involved on matters concerning nuclear power and in particular Vermont Yankee for more than two decades. When the Vermont Yankee nuclear reactor was permanently shut down in late December, 2014, what plans were already in place to manage the radioactive spent fuel rods? The plans in place then, it was owned by Entergy at the time, and their plans were to move the radioactive fuel rods into dry cast storage. Um, some have or had already been moved into dry cast storage and to be stored at the site until a longer term place for those fuel rods was available. When you say dry casks, are those by any chance the Holtec 5 eighths inch thick stainless steel dry casks that have proved to be such a problem in San Onofre? I think those are the same dry casks. I know they're Holtec dry casks. I'm not certain about the details of the make and the model of those dry casks. So right now the spent fuel is in casks. Is there anything still left in fuel ponds? I'm not certain. There may be some still left in pools. I don't know that all of the fuel rods have been moved as of right now. Considering that we really don't have a permanent facility for the storage, what does facility owner Entergy want or plan to do regarding the cleanup? Their plan has been to hold on to the site. The decommissioning funds that have been set aside by 
electricity customers a number of years ago is insufficient to decommission the site now. So their plan has been to let those decommissioning funds grow and at some point in the future begin to decommission the site. Their plans changed, oh, I guess probably about a couple of years ago now or a year and a half ago. And their plan is to transfer the entire site to a demolition company, North Star, and that demolition company would take ownership of the site and would be responsible for the cleanup and the decommissioning. A demolition company doesn't sound like exactly what's needed to take care of something as tricky and as dangerous as nuclear waste. What problems might there be with this transfer to North Star? Well, Conservation Law Foundation has been looking very closely at the financial transactions, the financial aspects of this. And certainly it should give anyone pause to be transferring a nuclear power plant or even a closed nuclear power plant to a demolition company, to a company that does not have a lot of experience in closing or decommissioning new commercial nuclear reactors. This is the first one that North Star would be doing. So that should give folks pause. Certainly they've, they have experience um, closing down and shutting down other large industrial sites and cleaning them up. It's not to say that the same issues would show up with a nuclear power plant. So here we've been looking largely at the financial transactions. Are there financial insurances in place? Is there money in the bank sufficient to get this job done and to make sure that it will be done and done well? And it is a very risky financial transaction in large part because North Star is promising to come in and say, you know, whereas Entergy said, we don't have enough money and we're going to sit on this plant and let the decommissioning fund grow for a number of years into the future. North Star says, no, we can do it with much less money. And we can do it with the money that's there and available now. That should give folks pause. They're saying, I mean, all reasonable estimates show that there's about half the money that would be needed or expected to be needed to decommission and clean up the site. And yet they're saying that they can do it for that amount of money. Of serious concern, cheaper is not always better. Um, Obviously, the communities and the people of Vermont and the people of New England and the People of the United States want these old nuclear plants to be cleaned up as quickly, as safely, and as well as possible. But, you know, it shouldn't be done on the cheap, and that's certainly a concern here. So then you look at what's backing this this transaction up. And the transfer from, you know, an operator who's been running this plant to a new company that is solely responsible for cleanup, that's happened for other industrial sites. And I think the most common ones and the ones that Conservation Law Foundation pointed out is old military bases. They often need to get cleaned up and they get cleaned up when they're transferred to a new owner. The new owner takes responsibility for that and they have insurance in place. They have money in the bank. They have a structure that really holds them accountable to get the job done and to make sure the job is done well. All of those assurances that are very common to have in place for the transfer of contaminated industrial sites just aren't in place here. The original owner, which would be Entergy, is not standing behind the deal. They're not adding extra money if something goes wrong. The incentives that are in place are not sufficient because North Star would be allowed to distribute profit to its shareholders along the way, so it could certainly run out of money before all the job is done. There's not the insurance in place that would be common. 
and the transaction and, and how things are being operated are far from transparent. There's just very little public um, review or available public information about what would be happening. Have there been public hearings or any way of getting general input to this process from the people who are going to be most affected in the long term, which are the citizens of Vermont? There have been. There are two regulatory approvals that are needed. One is from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in Washington, and they've filed to seek those approvals. And the second is with state regulators in Vermont. In Vermont, it's the Public Utilities Commission. And that's the proceeding that Conservation Law Foundation is participating in. And in that proceeding, there have been two public hearings, and um, some folks have come out and expressed concern and interest. Unfortunately, so much information is being kept secret. The public is being excluded. The, the contracts are secret. Most of the information about what would happen, when it would happen, how it would happen is just not available to the public. So they're really at a disadvantage to know what's being proposed or to evaluate what's being proposed. There have also been a number of days of, of technical hearings and a vast amount of paperwork filed both from the company, from state officials, state regulators, and from Conservation Law Foundation, really looking at this transaction to determine whether it promotes the general good of the state, which is the standard that our Vermont Public Utilities Commission is required to evaluate. Where is the NRC on this? I mean, it sounds like they've already signed off on the entire deal, but don't they continue to have oversight, meaning overseeing as opposed to overlooking, of the project? That's one of my favorites. And <laughs> do they have any continuing involvement until there is an ultimate resolution for this waste? The Nuclear Regulatory Commission continues to be involved on, on a number of different levels. And in particular, with this transaction or this proposed transaction, which would move the closed facility from Entergy to North Star, that requires Nuclear Regulatory Commission approval. And they have not given that approval yet. It's been applied for. There have been more than one, I think it's two now, requests for additional information, which is not that uncommon for coming from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And one of those very plainly says they are very concerned that there's insufficient money available to complete the decommissioning as is required. And that is a significant piece that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would continue to have oversight of. So it hasn't been approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And one serious concern is, you know, asking for approval from state regulators before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has signed off, and particularly where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has expressed real concerns about the financial assurances that are in place now. I can imagine that neither Entergy nor North Star is pleased with this kind of delay and this kind of inspection of what they are doing. What is either company doing to try and move this forward? They are filing the information that's being requested of them, both before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and before Vermont regulators. They say that they've wanted this deal to close by the end of the year. That seems it will be delayed, and it's delayed mostly because of shortcomings on the part of both Entergy and Northstar, that they have not provided the information that is needed and the demonstration that's needed to show that this is a good proposal. What kind of leverage do you have to make them 
show that material? Or is the public and are you in your organization somehow hampered from having any kind of leverage to get that information? As I said, we've been involved in the date regulatory proceedings here in Vermont, and we've shown very clearly what the shortcomings are of this proposed transaction, how it's not, it does not have the very common sense safeguards that are in place for other transfers of contaminated sites, and how the proposal should not be approved by the Vermont regulators. That's the, the leverage, if you will, that we have. Uh, we're putting forward very common sense proposals, uh, you know, saying that the information needs to be more available to the public. There needs to be additional both money in the bank and additional financial assurances. And without that, this just is not a good deal and should not be supported by state regulators. And I want to be clear that a transaction like this could be done, and it certainly it could be done right, and it should be done right. Conservation Law Foundation is certainly not saying that any type of transaction like this shouldn't go forward. I think the success that this country has seen with transfers and cleanups of some of the military bases and other contaminated sites, it makes sense to put it in the hands of folks who, who know what they're doing. Maybe North Star, if they're good at doing this, should be hired by Entergy to get the job done and just not handed over outright with insufficient money. Another significant problem is there's more than a dozen different corporate entities involved. Many of them are these shell corporations with no assets of their own that are very much put forward to shield them from liability. Again, that's a huge red flag if you're putting the ownership and responsibility into shell corporations that do not have the assets that are needed to get the job done. That's a significant problem. What, if anything, is North Star doing to try to sweeten the deal? And how well is that working to sway public opinion and politicians and regulators' votes? Well, certainly North Star early on has been forthcoming in some regards. They've been meeting with community members and they've made themselves very available. And, you know, kudos for them for doing that. And that's been a really a breath of fresh air when we compare that to what's happened with Entergy, who has been less than forthright on lots of information. So I think that has been really helpful. As individual issues are identified, Northstar, I think, has tried to sweeten the deal. They've tried to show that there's additional money available. But it's really just sort of shuffling some existing money around. They're taking money that really can't be relied on. For instance, future proceeds from a lawsuit that hasn't yet been filed or taking money that would otherwise, you know, come from the decommissioning fund, be paid to a contractor, and then the contractor is saying, well, we'll, we'll be on the hook for that amount of money. It's the same money. It's just moving to different players, and they're sort of compounding and giving the appearance of there being additional money available, but it's really not additional money. In legal terms, who is ultimately responsible for taking care of this site? Currently, who is ultimately responsible is Entergy. They own the site. They bought this site from the Vermont and other utilities back in 2002. They operated the plant for a number of years before it shut down. They are responsible. So where does this stand now and where does it go from here? Where it stands now is the various regulatory proceedings need to continue. Most of the information has been submitted. We just filed our last round of briefs um, a few days ago. 
the Nuclear Regulatory Commission will make a decision sometime. I don't think anybody knows for certain when that will be. Probably within the next few months. Um, I think that's what's currently expected. And then after that, the Public Utilities Commission will render its decision. I think it will, it will decide after the Nuclear Regulatory Commission decides. But to be clear, approval from both regulators are needed for this. Knowing that anything that happens in the decommissioning of one nuclear facility has bearing upon the decommissioning of every other nuclear facility, in your mind, what would be the best possible resolution to the problems of Vermont Yankees decommissioning and the radioactive waste? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, ideally the plant should be cleaned up. It should be restored to a usable site for other purposes. And the radioactive material that's there should be safely moved to someplace off-site. There's no current place for it to be moved to. You know, hopefully sometime in the future there will be. In the meantime, obviously, whoever owns the site needs to make sure that the casts that they're in are being well cared for and monitored and sufficiently protective of the waste that, that it stores. Obviously, one of the key problems is there's radioactive waste at these sites that will be dangerous for thousands of years, and the public needs to be protected from that. And we need to make sure that we're not handing over the keys to somebody who doesn't have both the financial and the technical wherewithal to make sure that this site remains safe and protected for many years into the future. What, if any, monitoring of the radioactive waste is being done, and how available is that to the public? That's been unfortunate, is most of that information has been not available to the public. And, and it's been really sad that so much of the review and oversight seems to happen in sort of a black box and with the public is excluded and doesn't have information. And I think far more information should be publicly available. The public needs to know what's happening at these nuclear facilities, needs to have the clear assurances that they are protected, that the material there is being safely and responsibly managed. The other thing I just wanted to point out is the situation at Vermont Yankee is particularly important because it's the first of what may be a number of transfers of closed nuclear power facilities. Entergy owns a number of other facilities, including the Pilgrim plant in Massachusetts, Indian Point in New York. Both of those are slated to be closed in the not-too-distant future. And Entergy has, has shown it doesn't really want to be owning and figuring out how to clean up these closed nuclear facilities. Their business is, is operating nuclear and other energy plants and selling that power. They're not in the business of closing down and cleaning up nuclear power facilities. So the example in Vermont, I think, could very well be a test case. That's why it's so important to get it done right in Vermont and to make sure that we build on success going forward and not build on failure. Sandra Levine, it has been great talking with you and getting more of the details about what's happening in Vermont with Vermont Yankee and the decommissioning process there. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Sandra Levine of the Conservation Law Foundation in Montpelier, Vermont. Moving right along. I think that much of the reluctance for people to take action on nuclear issues is because they just don't understand the nature of radioactivity, 
the danger posed by it, and what nuclear radiation does to the human body and our DNA. This information has been blanked out of most stories on atomic and nuclear subjects, starting with the first series of articles on the atom bomb, post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and continuing on to today. As a result, most people have not understood what radiation is and what it does and why they should really not have it in their immediate life if they can help it. To help clear up that confusion... Nuclear Hot Seat is happy to share with you a speech given by Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, or CCNR. It's just 10 minutes that he prepared for the Science for Peace Forum, How to Save the World in a Hurry, that was held at the University of Toronto on May 30, 2018. It's a brief but powerful masterclass on the difference between radiation and radioactivity, the exact mechanism radionuclides take once they're inside your body, and how these nasty little buggers damage our health. Just a quick guide to Canadian references that Dr. Edwards makes. Pickering is the Pickering nuclear generation on the north shore of Lake Ontario. Bruce is Bruce Nuclear Generating Station on the eastern shore of Lake Huron in Ontario. And can-do is not a can-do attitude, but it is the CANDU, C-A-N-D-U, for Canadian Deuterium Uranium, a Canadian pressurized heavy water nuclear reactor design. Here's Dr. Edwards. Because a crippled nuclear reactor is dangerous, not due to its invisible rays, but because it disseminates harmful radioactive pollutants, so I prefer to use the word radioactivity rather than radiation. So what is radioactivity? Well, it's not a thing, but a property of certain materials. While there are a handful of significant naturally occurring radioactive materials, there are over 1,000 human-made radioactive materials. Most of these were not seen in nature in measurable amounts prior to 1939. When they talk about background radiation, it doesn't include most of these materials. They are created in large quantities as byproducts of nuclear fission, whether in bombs or in nuclear reactors. Each of these hundreds of radioactive elements has its own particular physical and chemical properties, therefore each following its own distinct ecological pathways through the environment and biochemical pathways through the body. Every radioactive atom has an unstable nucleus that will eventually disintegrate or explode, giving off one or two subatomic projectiles. And of course, the Becquerel unit of radioactivity indicates one disintegration is occurring every second. Each radioactive emission coming directly from the nucleus is one of four kinds, an alpha particle, a beta particle, a gamma ray, or a neutron. These projectiles are all ionizing, meaning that they are able to break molecular bonds quite easily, thereby killing or crippling nearby living cells. If the cell is crippled, it can reproduce and possibly develop into a, uh, a biologically harmful cluster later in life, which we generally call cancer. Alpha and beta particles are primarily internal hazards because they are less penetrating, whereas gamma rays and neutrons are both external as well as internal hazards because they are highly penetrating. A large exposure to any of these types of radioactive emissions can cause death within days or weeks, while chronic low-level exposures over time can cause cancers years later. 
Damage to eggs or sperm can lead to genetically defective offspring, as Richard mentioned. Such defects can appear in the immediate offspring or in several generations after the original cellular damage. Chronic exposure to radioactivity can also compromise the immune system, increase the incidence of cardiovascular diseases, cause a decrease in intelligence among young children, and uh, as Richard also mentioned, accelerate the aging process. Most sources of radiation, uh, non-ionizing or ionizing, in our experience, can be shut off with a switch. An x-ray machine, a microwave oven, a tanning bulb, all can be turned off quickly. And once they are off, they are absolutely harmless. Not so with radioactivity. Radioactivity is, in fact, a form of nuclear energy that cannot be shut off. That is why meltdowns can occur even after a nuclear reactor is completely shut down. Three Mile Island and Fukushima are examples of this. Ongoing radioactive disintegrations in the core of the reactor provide enormous heat and drive the temperature of the fuel up to 2,800 degrees Celsius, twice the melting point of steel, just due to radioactive disintegrations alone. At that temperature, the ceramic fuel begins to melt like candle wax. Because radioactivity cannot be shut off, the effects of radioactive contamination can be very long-lasting, leaving, for example, no man's lands around the Chernobyl site, the Fukushima site, the Marshall Islands test areas, and the site of the Kishtim disaster over 60 years ago in the Ural Mountains of the USSR. When it comes to radioactive waste, since radioactivity cannot be shut off or rendered harmless, waste disposal is actually a euphemism for waste abandonment. Nuclear agencies say that waste disposal means that they have no intention to retrieve the stuff. But that's not a scientific definition, that's a political definition. In fact, there is no scientific definition of disposal. The long-term confinement of radioactive post-fission waste remains an unsolved problem of mammoth proportions. Catastrophe potential. In 1976, British nuclear physicist Sir Brian Flowers wrote a report for the UK government on nuclear energy and the environment. In it, he pointed out that if nuclear energy had been deployed in Europe before the outbreak of World War II, then large parts of Europe would be uninhabitable today because of World War II. That's because Chernobyl-like meltdowns can be brought about by acts of malice, warfare, or sabotage even if the reactor is shut down. It is estimated that the Chernobyl accident released about 80,000 terabecquerels of cesium-137, just one of the many re radioactive materials released. A becquerel is one disintegration per second, as I mentioned, and of course a terabecquerel is a million, million becquerels. For 20 years after the Chernobyl accident, sheep farmers in Northern England and Wales could not freely sell their sheep meat for human consumption because of residual radioactive contamination by cesium-137 from Chernobyl. To this day, wild boars killed by hunters in Germany, Sweden, and Belarus are unfit for human consumption because of radioactive cesium contamination. The same thing is observed with wild boars in the Fukushima area of Japan. Cesium-137 is a powerful emitter of penetrating gamma rays as well as a gamma emitter. 
Ground concentrations of cesium-137 are often used to decide which areas need to be evacuated. Around Chernobyl, it is expected that land in a 30-kilometer radius will be uninhabitable for at least 300 years. Now just think, there are two and a half million people living within 30 kilometers of Pickering. Can you imagine that radius, those families being permanently displaced and that that land would become uninhabitable for centuries? A single irradiated can-do fuel bundle freshly discharged from the reactor can deliver a 100% lethal dose of radiation to any unshielded human at a distance of one meter in about 20 seconds. And there are over 2,500 such bundles in each Pickering reactor. Moreover, there are over 400,000 irradiated fuel bundles in the Pickering spent fuel pools underwater being cooled because they continue to generate heat. They have to be cooled for about 10 years. This pool, these pools contain at least 4 million terabecquerels of cesium-137. That's 50 times the amount of cesium-137 that was released from Chernobyl, which was about 80,000 terabecquerels. Now, if, for example, God forbid, a nuclear explosion were to occur near the Pickering plant, the water in the pool would be vaporized by the fireball, the zirconium metal cladding on the fuel bundles would catch fire, and virtually all of the cesium-137 would escape into the atmosphere in the form of radioactive vapors and aerosol particles. That would create a no-man's land of mammoth proportions by releasing 50 times more cesium-137 than the amount released from the Chernobyl disaster. And these spent fuel pools, not only at Pickering, but all around the world, are not protected with very heavy structures, unlike the dome of the reactor uh, building, which is very thick concrete. Uh, this is not the case with spent fuel pools. So uh, frightening as these considerations are, we have to think about the long-lasting implications. At Fukushima, seven years after the triple meltdown, now we're seven years later, there are some 800,000 tons of radioactively contaminated water that the nuclear authorities would like to simply dump into the Pacific Ocean. In fact, they're building one new 300-ton tank for every four days. They used to be building one per day about four years, three years ago. They have now removed about 70 different species of radionuclides from this water, but they cannot remove the radioactive tritium. That's because radioactive tritium is chemically identical to ordinary hydrogen. It is incredibly difficult to separate a radioactive isotope from a non-radioactive isotope of the same element because chemically they're like Siamese twins. Wherever one goes, the other one goes. Tritium is radioactive hydrogen and it forms radioactive water molecules, which are identical with ordinary water molecules, except that they are radioactive. No municipal water treatment plant can remove the tritium because you cannot filter water from water. Also, because hydrogen is one of the most common elements in living things, being present in all organic molecules, for example, including DNA molecules, radioactive tritium becomes incorporated into all living things, and some fraction of it is organically bound into all sorts of molecules in the body. It has been known for decades that tritium is at least three times more biologically harmful than gamma radiation per unit of energy absorbed by tissue, but our nuclear regulator pays no attention to that fact. 
Indeed, two independent scientific bodies appointed by the government of Ontario have found that the permissible levels of tritium in drinking water is about 350 times too high currently in Canada compared with other cancer-causing agents that are regulated. But again, our nuclear regulatory machinery pays no attention to such inconvenient scientific truths. But this example of tritium points to a much larger problem. Nuclear fission creates radioactive versions of many elements that are otherwise non-radioactive, such as cesium, strontium, silver, tellurium, magnesium, and countless others. Once these radioactive varieties are disseminated into the environment in significant quantities, they become inseparable from the non-radioactive varieties. While most of the naturally occurring radionuclides like uranium, thorium, radium, and polonium are chemically distinct and can therefore be separated out by chemical means from non-radioactive materials, such is not the case with the deluge of human-made radioactive elements created by fission. Already, it is proving very difficult to find uncontaminated metals with which to fabricate radiation monitors, such as Geiger counters. Evidently, if the metal from which the monitor is made is already radioactive, it will interfere with the operation of the machine, making it increasingly difficult to determine where the radioactive emissions are coming from. There are many other important topics about radioactivity, but time does not permit. I'll just mention two of them. Uh, number one, half-lives can be very deceptive. As some radioactive materials become more radioactive as time goes on, not less, examples are, include radon gas, depleted uranium, and even irradiated nuclear fuel after 50,000 years. And plutonium, which has a 24,000-year half-life, when it disintegrates, transforms into another material, which has a 700-million-year half-life. So half-lives can be defective, de deceptive, excuse me. The second point is that some radioactive materials are very difficult to detect, even in a well-equipped nuclear plant, because they give off non-penetrating radiation, yet they can be extraordinarily dangerous inside the body. Examples are carbon-14 dust, which workers at Pickering tracked into their homes in the 1980s, and plutonium-bearing dust, which over 500 contract workers inhaled on a daily basis for almost three weeks at Bruce in 2009. Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition on Nuclear Responsibility. As clear and concise as he always is. And if this information went by a little too fast for you to get all of it, do not despair. We have a full transcript of his talk available and linked on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 375. Activist shout-out! Nukes in space are getting a lot of attention these days as we're saying, no, don't touch it, it's evil. Carl Grossman has written Weapons in Space and The Wrong Stuff, the space program's nuclear threat to our planet, among his many books. Carl was interviewed by Counterspin on the issues, and we will have a link to the audio on the website. The annual Keep Space for Peace Week an international week of protest to stop the militarization of space, will be held October 6 to 13 around the world. That's time for you to get something together in your area. A list of events is being compiled by Bruce Gagnon and the folks at Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. You can notify them of your event or find out if somebody's already beat you to the punch in your area 
by going to globalnetatmindspring.com. And when their list gets posted, we'll let you know and link to it. And I just got to tell you, I am so bowled over by the response to my newly published book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. I've been getting rave reviews and attagirls from readers from all over the place. And copies have gone out as far as Italy, Australia, New Zealand. We know who and where you are, Kevin Hester. It's really been amazing. If you'd like to find out more about the book and how you can get a copy, go to nuclearhotseat.com book, and it will redirect you to the appropriate page to find out more. Come join the fun of learning about what it was like on the ground at Middletown when the bullhorn came down the street to warn us to stay inside because, oops, that little problem down at the end plant was a whole lot worse than they'd originally told us. The book is also about how I got from there to Nuclear Hot Seat and includes side trips to previous incarnations of my life dealing with Hollywood, Broadway, and network television from the inside out. You'll also learn what the nuclear industry gets away with and how it gets away with it. Again, go to nuclearhotseat.com book to learn more. And please, once you've read the book, give it a five-star review on Amazon to help me move up in their listings and get a place in their marketing algorithm. Here's today's final thought. If a nuclear disaster happens and the media doesn't cover it, did it really happen? Well, yeah, but... Nobody will know about it. I was alerted to this ever-present problem again this week after two days of Canadian meetings, including an information session for journalists and subsequent press conference was held at the National Press Theatre in Ottawa, protests, and the annual Red Canoe March through the streets of Ottawa garnered absolutely zero mainstream media coverage in Canada. Okay, them's fighting words. I used to do media activism for minority groups and had quite a bit of success with it. So here's an object lesson in dealing with a tone-deaf media organization. Pull together at least two or three prominent activists in your community, people who really know their stuff and can express it articulately. Give yourselves a name. Call yourselves the Nuclear Media Coalition or something like that. Just make sure you have the word media in whatever you call yourself. Then have your most official-sounding individual call up each of the local TV, radio, and or newspaper outlets and say that your community group has a strong complaint and you want an opportunity to discuss it with the news director, station general manager, assignment editor, and programming director. These are the people in charge of choosing which news stories to cover, what locally produced programming will be focused upon, and where reporters will be sent. Ask for a day and time to meet. Be polite but firm. Call back repeatedly until you get a commitment to meet. And along the way, if all you're talking to is a secretary, make sure to be charming and polite and respectful to him or her. That's not the person with the power, and they're the one who can get you through to the person with the power. When you do get a time, prep for the meeting. Create a list of talking points of what you want to convey and figure out what you want to get out of the meeting. 
This could be an informational panel, a consciousness-raising session, direct access to the newsroom to alert them to upcoming events, a specific person to be your liaison. Figure out what would work best for you. Now, rest assured, you're not going to get what you ask for at this meeting, but it's going to be a step in a building process that will take place over time. But cover your talking points, engage in conversation, listen to what they're saying about how they have to operate within their confines. As you raise their awareness, plug in your own credentials and make certain that you ask for your next meeting. Don't accept some vague, we'll get back to you. If they say that, act like a coach and say, yes, and by when will that meeting take place? We'd like to have a date. Then be silent, and they will either come directly forward and say, okay, we will set the date for sometime here. We will get back to you by Thursday. Or you can be silent and just enjoy it while they squirm and or obfuscate. If necessary, you can always throw in, if you don't get back to us, what is the best way to remind you of the commitment to meet that you just gave us? Now, if they're resistant, and there's a good chance that at least some of them are going to try and fob you off, you can always say, look, I know you would rather not engage in this conversation, but I feel it's only fair to let you know that there's a more radical fringe within our movement, and they've been talking about taking a much more direct, you can make little quote marks on that word, direct approach to making our needs known. And I've got to be honest with you, we have no control over them, other than returning to them with some genuine results to show from this meeting. Now, I, we, would rather this whole thing proceed through discussion, education, mutual learning of how we can work together to enrich your coverage and our community outreach, rather than by having angry protesters doing things that your competitors would love to cover, though you'll be making news not in the way you or I would want. So let's take the road of least resistance. Set up the meeting, consciousness-raising, info panel, whatever it is you're going after, and let's set a date right now or as soon as possible so that we can go back to these young Turks and calm them down. Unless you'd rather set them off, in which case I, we, can't be held responsible for their actions. If they accuse you of threatening them, just defer and go, no, no, we wouldn't be the ones doing it, and we're letting you know about it ahead of time so you can be a choice as to what to do. We are being your allies in this. Then stifle the smirks and the laughter while they hem and haw, and probably they'll go for another meeting. Then make sure you follow up. Thank them for their time. Thank them for their willingness to listen. Make certain they follow through. And if you don't hear back from them, repeat this as often as you need to, to build your relationship with that mainstream media outlet. And repeat it with all the others. Remember, if you take this road, always conduct yourselves professionally. Dress for the meeting. Groom for it. And realize you're developing contacts with other human beings who honestly have life and death power over whether the larger community learns about the work you're doing or not. So don't blow it. Enlist them in your cause. Hold your tempers. Build the bridge. You might be surprised to find out that you've got allies where you least expected them. You may even start getting coverage. And if not, 
Well, there's always the Young Turks branch of your movement to take the next step, whether it previously existed or not. If you've got any questions about how to work this out, shoot me an email, info at nuclearhotseat.com, and I'll help you figure things out. This methodology has worked before, and trust me, it will work again. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 28, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, sandiegounionTribune.com, ocregister.com, latimes.com, abqjournal.com, Las Vegas Review Journal, power-eng.com, energynews.us, thestate.com, denver.cbslocal.com, japantimes.co.jp, kyoto.rt.com, 38degrees.org.uk, panarthnews.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, digileek.com, Ray Masalis, thank you very much, indaily.com.au, sciencedirect.com, thebulletin.org, catchnews.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to all of you Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, 123 countries and six continents and counting. And welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. Don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Get it delivered via email every week by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, and sign up for weekly email links to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. If you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. And to find out where to get my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat, go to NuclearHotSeat.com slash book. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency starts, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. There you go. You just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we're all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.